Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchione. I'm here with uh, Mark Chenoweth. And uh, we have, starting next week, the Supreme Court back in service uh, after a pretty big term last uh, last term. We have a uh, pretty interesting one coming up this term. And what they've done is they've set out uh, a number of cases to be argued in October. And starting on October 3rd, the first Monday in uh, October, is Sackett v. EPA. And uh, Sackett v. EPA uh, is an important case for a couple of reasons. Um, it's kind of been here before. <laughs> um, the Sacketts uh, have property that they did not believe was uh, anywhere near the waters of the United States. Uh, it's separated by roads and and ditches and all these other things. It was far from, from navigable waters. But the EPA says that their, their land drains into a, a navigable water of the United States. And so the case turns on a, basically a, a matter of statutory interpretation of what water of the United States mean, what the statute means, um, because uh, whether or not water can reach waters of the United States from their land is in dispute, and then whether or not what their land, how their land connects to water is in dispute. And so uh, this is being watched closely, though, because of the reach of what the Environmental Protective Agency has. Um, and uh, as has been pointed out in the briefs, the Congress could, if it wanted to, have said any land that drains into any anywhere uh, that the United States uh, has control of would be would be waters of the United States, but that's not what it said. Um, so I, I think that what court watchers are going to be watching is um, questions from the justices on that statute and how the government says they're going to look for a limiting principle within the statute. They're going to say, okay, if, 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 this, if this counts, what doesn't count? And how would that be different if the statute was written differently? And so I think that would have, um, that particular uh, statutory question, I don't think there's any constitutional questions in it, but um, that issue is going to come up and that is going to be closely watched by landowners and, and various other uh, people who have dealings with the EPA and by all the regulators as well. And um, uh, there's a few others. I'm not going to mention all of them coming up. I'm just going to mention some that I find interesting. And the one I find extremely interesting is National Pork Producers v. Ross. And this case uh, is, is of importance to everyone who eats bacon, ham, any, any, any pork products. Um, 
sausages, the whole the whole schmear. What about Canadian bacon? <laughs> and, and and Canadian bacon. Um, so what happens is that California uh, passed a law that pork products cannot enter the state unless the pigs are raised in a certain way. And so the pigs have to have a certain amount of room and a certain, uh, you know, it, it's for the uh, benefit of the uh, well-being of the animal. And so... The cage is bigger than New York City apartments, yeah. I think. Is. Well, everything is. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, but yeah, so, so that's exactly right. So every, but um, there's no, there's no pork in the country raised this way. California um, consumes something like 13 to 15% of the pork in the United States, but it only raises about less than 1% of the pigs or the hogs. So it's got to import all of its, all of its bacon. It's not like, you know, out in Napa Valley, they have these uh, hogs swanning around in luxury and then they can just, they can just substitute it. So um, now why does this matter? Can't California control what's sold in its stores? Well, to some extent it can, but because it's such a huge market, this would affect all the pork producers all across the country, Arkansas, you know, everywhere they, they create, they create, and they have a lot of hogs. Iowa. Uh, Iowa, you got it. And so um, they don't want their uh, production and, and their own laws suddenly mean nothing because, because California is running the show by its market power. And the way I always look at this, this is kind of like if, if you look in the larger world, China stopping people from speaking if you want to if you want to do uh, business in their markets. Um, even even co companies far from China will do things so that they can have access to that market. Well, California is taking that upon itself as well. So the question is extraterritoriality of uh the reach of the California laws. And we've had something in this country for a very long time. It's a judicial doctrine called um, the Dormant Commerce Clause. The Constitution gives very explicit power to Congress to regulate interstate commerce. And uh, it's, a, it's broad power, certainly with a case called Wickard v. Filburn, which, which you can't believe, which is about a, a, it's agriculture again. So if a fellow's grown his own wheat on his own land to sell, to, to feed to his own stock, in, and it never leaves, the um, Supreme Court in the 1940s decided that, uh, well, if he didn't grow that wheat, it would be in commerce. He, he would have to go buy it. So it affects commerce. And so therefore, uh, that's interstate commerce, even though it never went anywhere. So particularly with that, with that court decision, the Commerce Clause, the Active Commerce Clause, Congress does something is extremely broad. So what happens when it does nothing? Well, the court said, you know, we're supposed to be a common market. The, the genius of the constitution is that it, no state can bar another state's goods or services. Um, so we're gonna say that certain things can't be banned, like Virginia banned taking New York's garbage for its landfills, and uh, New York sued. And the guy from Virginia who wanted to put buy that garbage for his landfill, sued. And the court said, nah, there's a, there's a market in garbage and uh, it's gotta be a free market by gum. So- uh, So many of the Norman Commerce Clause cases are garbage cases. It's really <laughs> slightly bizarre. 
<laughs> as as is Wicked B. Filbert in a garbage case. Yes, you know, of said, a different sort. Of yeah. a different sort. But um, so I think people are going to be watching this closely because this case doesn't break along any ideological line. Justice Thomas hates the Dormant Commerce Clause. He thinks it's made up nonsense and that uh, Congress can take care of all these problems if, if problems they be and that um, and that the court should not be involved in these things. Uh, on the other hand, there is a, a problem with states having their laws affect other states because you also don't want a fight between the states. Um, I, I've noticed there are also... Uh, the court is the fights between the states. There are a couple of ca cases that I don't know the ins and outs of where the states are suing each other. We, so the state, the states are allowed to sue each other uh, for original jurisdiction in the United States, and there's a few of those. Yeah, well, a lot of them are over rivers and, oh, and oh. the allocation of water. Yeah, there's always, or if a river shifts its banks and somebody wants the island, right? And then, they, so they don't really take that. There's Delaware v. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arkansas v. Delaware. I don't know what they are, but I do find that. They're always like some some water has shifted or or some island that they both want. And uh, the Supreme Court gives it to a special master. They never do it themselves. They never do the fact finding themselves. And I don't I can't recall that they've ever said ah, that special master we appointed. He's all wet. We don't know. We don't know. Follow it. But, um, so national porks producers is one to watch. It's going to have a big effect, I think, on the price of pork, depending on how it goes, because if you do have to. Uh, follow this particular um, law, there's going to be a lot fewer hogs is what's going to happen. Um, and they're going to be a lot more expensive. So it will affect that depending on how they come out. And I don't, I haven't heard any prognostications on how people think it'll come out. I think that one's a, a jump ball. We don't know where it's going to go. Um, the other one that's going to be argued shortly the next week is causing um, some chatter is uh, Andy Warhol Foundation, Inc., the goldsmith. And this is kind of interesting only because uh, for the general is because Andy Warhol's kind of famous and his, you know, his tomato cans and his pop art that he always did is pretty iconic. I mean, when you see it, you know it. And um, the Goldsmith uh, did some prints for Warhol. Warhol took them, uh, did some photographs and, and Warhol took them and made some prints out of them. And he, bought those, had the rights to those. And he then published them, I think in the Atlantic of the New Yorker, somewhere like that. And that was all well and good. And there was no fight over it. But then 30, 40 years later, in a retrospective, the um, prints were published again by someone who didn't have the rights. And Warhol said, uh, the Warhol Foundation, because Andy Warhol's dead, said, uh, we have the rights to those. And the, and the, the goldsmith said, "Uh, -uh. I only gave it to him for those purposes. He doesn't have the right to to um, to keep using it in perpetuity." Um, and the real question is, did the is the print a big enough change? It's it's about artistic expression and the copyright laws because you have copyright laws to protect the creator and you want to have creation, but on the other hand, how much change has to be done to the original artwork? to mean that you don't have any rights over it anymore. So artists are watching that one closely. Um, and because it has good visuals, you'll see it in the newspapers, I think, because there's pictures involved. Um, now, it's not coming up this month, but I do 
want to talk about our cases. And that's the cocktail. Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. I, uh, John, we, we've uh, we've had so many topics to talk about uh, this uh, the last few weeks here that we we never talked about a cert petition that we filed at the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's actually a cert petition uh, that that I think certainly should be granted. And and there is a, an active circuit split uh, on the issue. And it's not the reason that we jumped into this case uh, to begin with, uh, but it's the issue that, that I think uh, is calling out for Supreme Court resolution. So the folks who have been following the program for a while may remember that we, uh, we sued the U.S. Department of Agriculture in a case called RCAP USA, uh, the USDA. And the issue in the case had to do with radio frequency ID tags, uh, ear tags for, for cattle and bison and, and some other livestock. And the question was whether or not there had been a, a regulation during the Obama administration that had that had specifically allowed some of these things to uh, to uh, some of the traditional methods of of branding and so forth to continue and had preserved those. And then the Trump administration had a, a, a guidance where it tried to uh, a guidance where it tried to. Uh, replace the regulation with a guidance. And so that's what we sued over originally saying, look, you can't replace a regulation with a guidance. That's not, you know, that's not, uh, uh, that's not copacetic. Well, uh, we've talked about what happened with that part of the case before, but one of the things that happened in, in the 10th circuit is that we were, we wound up arguing over whether or not these federal advisory committees uh, that, uh, that the USDA had set up, whether they were federal advisory committees or, or not, because the USDA did not treat them like federal advisory committees. They didn't do all the things you have to do, like announce them publicly and have minutes and make sure that they were evenly balanced in terms of the composition of the committee. And all there's all these things that you have to do when you have a federal advisory committee. And specifically what uh, what had happened here is that, that the USDA had set up the Cattle Traceability Working Group. Our client was one of the members of the Cattle Traceability Working Group, and they were uh, USDA was turning to this group. Uh, in other words, they were utilizing it. And, and that's the question is whether or not, uh, if something's a federal advisory committee, it either has to be established or utilized by, uh, you know, by the uh, federal agency. And then it has to follow these rules under the Federal Advisory uh, Committee Act. So it was clearly, in my view, it was clearly utilizing the, the working group for, uh, for input on how best to implement this guidance on mandatory RFID uh, ear tags. Well, there were people on the council or on the working group, including our client who were opposed to that. And the other people on the, on the committee and the USDA weren't thrilled with that. So they, uh, so they said, hey, let's, uh, 
let's set up a new uh, group called the Producer Traceability Council. It was just a subset of the people on the cattle traceability working group who were all on the same side of the question in terms of, of uh, what they wanted. What they wanted, exactly. So that so it pretty deliberately and explicitly was not evenly balanced because it, it excluded those folks. And we said, well, hey, wait a minute. You can't do that. USDA can't set up a group that's deliberately one-sided. It can't establish or utilize a group that's one-sided. Well, we thought it was a rather cut and dried case, but we lost this at the 10th Circuit, John. And, and the way that that happened was that the 10th Circuit uh, said, the, the Supreme Court has looked at the term utilized and it's decided that that term needs to be narrowly construed. And one of the reasons for that, or, or at least the main case that folks look at for that is they said, look, there was this group uh, of, from the American Bar Association that was formed a long time ago to look at judicial nominations. And it's pretty clear that even though the White House and Congress and everyone looks to the ABA for its opinion on judicial nominees, that it's not a federal advisory committee, or at least the Congress didn't want to make that committee a federal advisory committee. Well, it's obvious that Congress didn't establish the AABA committee, so that's not in dispute at all. So, but it did appear to be utilizing it. So what they did essentially was narrow the meaning of utilize in a way that would exclude this ABA committee. Well, of course, that's had the effect of potentially excluding other committees that really are federal advisory committees from falling under the definition of utilized as well. Well, that's maybe not a problem as long as you uh, say, well, look, surely if you've established the committee, it's a federal advisory committee. And that's what uh, other circuits have said, including uh, most prominently the 11th circuit. But the 10th circuit said, well, wait a minute, if the Supreme Court is going to narrowly construe utilized, then it should also narrowly construe established. And so we're going to narrowly construe established. And by the way, we're not granting you any discovery to determine who paid for the first meeting of this organization. Well, you don't get to see any of- Whether it was established or utilized or not. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're, we're not giving you any discovery. You're not gonna get to, uh, to dig through the, the papers of, uh, of this group and find out uh, whether or not it, uh, uh, it was established by, by the USDA or, uh, or the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS is the, the sub agency at USDA that's been involved in, in this. Uh, and yet through FOIA, we were able to get some emails and some other materials that I think made it pretty obvious that that uh, that uh, the USDA was heavily involved in establishing uh, this. Uh, uh, you know, it was at least John of this who will rid me of this tr troublesome priest sort of a variety of, of communications between the agency uh, and the working group, uh, both in terms of setting up the original working group and the subsequent producer uh, traceability council. Uh, there were all kinds of uh, of uh, messages back and forth, including one uh, sent to the USDA apologizing for including the name of this USDA person on the committee because, oops, we didn't mean to make it look like that you you know, were on the committee. I hope we're not creating any problems, uh, you know, kind of thing, which, of course, it just shows that they were hiding the role of the USDA and APHIS in the, in the, in the establishment of these uh, committees. So we, uh, we have teed this uh, cert petition up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the question, really, John, is very simple. It's it's whether or not the uh, the, the interpretation of established should be uh, given its sort of ordinary meaning, or maybe original public meaning, if you if you're that if you're that sort of uh, textualist. Uh, you know, is that the way that we should be interpreting the word established under the Federal Advisory Committee Act, or should we be interpreting it 
uh, and that's, by the way, what the 11th Circuit has, has done in the past, or should we interpret it the way the 10th Circuit did here, where you have a pretty narrow understanding of what it means to establish a federal advisory committee? And you might think, uh, John, well, gosh, what does it matter? This seems like a sort of picayune uh, issue. Uh, but here's the problem. If Congress created the Federal Advisory Committee Act, clearly it wants these advisory committees to be transparent. It wants folks to know who's behind, uh, you know, where are the agencies turning for information about these different topics where it's regulating people. If your industry, if your ranch is going to be regulated, John, maybe it shouldn't be regulated by all your neighbors who don't like you getting together and coming up with regulations that they like and you don't. Yeah, or if, or if the larger producers often can bear regulatory costs that the smallers can't, and they use it to drive people out and then take the land. It's all, it's, it's, it, they, don't, they don't send wild cowboys over like in the movies anymore. They often send the regulators. Yes, that's right. Uh, and and it's, uh, it, can be, it can be nefarious, or it can just be, uh, it can just be t two sets of people with different interests, um, sort of uh, you know, just standing up for their own interests. But uh, either way, what, what Congress has said is if you're going to have one of these federal advisory committees, that it has to be transparent. You have to have the minutes and so forth. You have to have them evenly balanced. You have to have the views of, of all the affected sort of interests. That doesn't mean that everybody in the world gets to be on the committee, but it, there has to be representation on the committee for these different uh, viewpoints. And if you're not going to have that, then there needs to be some penalty associated with your failure or the agency's failure to follow the Federal Advisory Committee Act rules. And typically, what the, what the penalty is and what we've asked for here is that the agency not be able to use any of the materials that were produced from the committee. And you might think, well, isn't that efficient, Mark? Isn't that, aren't you just taking all of this work that was done and throwing it down the drain? And, 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 and boy, that seems like an awful waste of effort. And I think to some extent that's true, but how else do you discipline the agency for violating the Federal Advisory Committee Act? I mean, that is the penalty that's established in the statute and that's that's the penalty that's going to encourage the agency to do the right thing and if you don't have federal courts enforcing the federal advisory committee act then it might as well go away because if you're if you're going to suggest that what the usda did here is something that agencies can do then you've just created a roadmap for every agency to violate the federal advisory committee act with every future uh, a committee that it utilizes or establishes. It's, it's like if you say that guidance is regulation, who's ever going to publish a regulation again? Right. right? Who's ever going to go through it? And and this this is the the reason you have to hold them to the rule because no one if 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 the reg, if putting out the regulation is hard and doing something else gets you the same result, they're going to do the something else. That's right. Yeah, they're going to take the shortcut if there's a shortcut, and the fact that that might violate the uh, statute isn't no one at USDA is going to lose sleep over that. And if the federal courts are asleep at the switch and now I'm mixing metaphors, but uh, if, if they're asleep at the switch, then the federal advisory committee act is a dead letter. And so I think it's important for that reason. Uh, the other thing I would say, John, is the Supreme court made this mess to a certain extent with its interpretation uh, of, of utilized. And that's, I understand the historical reasons why and how that happened and so forth. But it's all the more reason why it can't narrow the definition of established without really undermining what is a valuable tool for disciplining agencies in, in terms of their use of, of federal advisory uh, committees. 
So that that case is, and, and I would say also a tool yeah. for getting better information. Absolutely, out of out of the out of the committees. I mean, if you have a bunch of people who all want to go the own, own the same way, you're not going to get you're not going to find out what's wrong with what you're trying to do. That's right, because the agencies uh, their incentive is to stack the committee with all the people who already agree with them, right? right? And just to sort of uh, have uh, you know have have the committee as as a resource for conclusions they've already reached, and that's not that's not really a valid use of a federal advisory committee. Uh, so anyway, we've, we've uh, filed that cert petition with the Supreme Court. It's now, it's now pending. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, if the Supreme Court decides to hear that, uh, but certainly think that this, uh, this is an issue worth the court's time and attention, and we'll keep you posted on what happens.